147th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 89 years to the day since the first use in print of the word bodyline. Hugh Buggy, a journalist at the Melbourne Age, included it in his write-up of the first day of the first Ashes Test at the SCG. Welcome to the podcast that hopes the imminent Ashes series gives journalists as much lively copy. I wonder whether the wonderfully named Hugh Buggy knew that he was creating such a kind of brand when he used that word for the first time. But I think that he was, the word bodyline was intended as a bit of a slur, wasn't it? It was a kind of, you know, tabloid headline provocative framing of the, of the, the Larwood bouncer, bouncer situation. But, um, you know, it's amazing I guess it's how those moments one of those, He got it into print, didn't he? But we all, I, I always love these debates about this always comes back to, you know, did Shakespeare actually create this word? Or did he just happen to write it down? Or did he happen to hear someone everyone? in the pub coming up with it? Exactly. And then be the first to write it down? Now there is the key, be the first to write it down. And you get all get it all get all the credit. Um, and of course, survive for hundreds of years for posterity which was Shakespeare's other trip in the uh, Hugh Buggy Shakespeare there we go we've just put them on the same pedestal um, in this episode of Reverse Swept Radio we are going to be talking about some some different perspectives on the India uh, New Zealand test series going on at the moment uh, I'm going to be delving into the remarkable story of Bessie Wilson and we're going to be reviewing uh, Hugh de Selincourt's book The Cricket Match his delightful 1924 book The Cricket Match now um Andy, you have been uh, under the weather in a kind of uh, 2021 slightly predictable way. Yes, I've uh, had the uh, the illness they're all talking about. I had a, a dose of COVID last week and was very grateful to have India and New Zealand to keep me company while I was in bed. In the UK, I think I have to give huge credit to Talk Sport. I think they're often viewed mm. as the BBC's lesser sibling, but they did a wonderful job on this. And I think it's worth recognising it's quite a brave thing to cover it in the first place. I think generally the presumption on UK radio would be, if England aren't playing, why bother? But they did cover it. They covered it remotely from the UK, but it worked well. Uh, particular praise for the irrepressible Jared Kimber, mm. who, who was wonderful both uh, as a kind of entertainer, but also with a technical analysis. I don't need to, I'm sure, to convince our listeners of the joys of cricket on the radio. But for me, this was the first time I can really remember listening to cricket on the radio while ill. And I would recommend it um, because I think, particularly at a point where with COVID, of course, you're not allowed to go anywhere, to be transported to a gripping test match in northeast India was exactly what I needed. So what is the um, kind of commentary style of TalkSport? Is it a bit more like guerrilla cricket than, than TMS? Would that be, would that be fair? So we had Jared Kimber, we had Gareth Batty, Stephen Harmison were, were the sort of main main right. trio. Um, I really liked Gareth Batty. Um, I think he <laughs> he his uh, his sort of technical analysis, also lots of historical references that took me back. You know, clearly some a real obsessive of, of the game. Um, he's uh, very scathing of the whole concept of stats, which was maybe right. his one slightly odd foible. Um, you're, you're right that I think of the, of the scale of guerrilla cricket on one end, Test Match so Special on the other, it's probably more at the guerrilla cricket end. Um, and, and they did a fine job, I think, combination of you know, good technical analysis, uh, good and uh, sort of the entertainment and colour of the occasion. You do miss something by not being there, I think. Of course yep. you do. I think there's something about the... Being able to soak up the, the atmosphere a bit, yeah. Exactly, but but they they did it. They did a very reasonable job in it, indeed. I'm very interested to hear that 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 um, Stephen Harmison is on that team because I've been enjoying seeing him kind of emerge more as a sort of pundit commentator 
over the last um, little while. I remember when he was playing, there was always that slightly odd phenomenon that he would be, you know, in a in an interview after an Ashes test or something, and really all he'd want seem to want to talk about was football. And it seemed that his great, you know, inspiration when he was growing up was to be a goalkeeper for whatever I can't remember what what club it was that he kind of idolised. But he's he a Newcastle fan. Seemed yeah, Newcastle exactly, and he seemed to sort of slightly begrudge the idea that he'd ended up being good at cricket when he'd really liked to have been good at football ideally and so seeing this kind of second coming of of Steve Harmison which seems to have only really happened over the last kind of year two years has been quite interesting watching him kind of fall back in love with the game a highlight of the coverage was an ill Stephen Harmison who was commentating with a bad cold because he had spent the previous day re-erecting a fence in sort of polar conditions so you know that's the kind of stuff you do get if you cover the series remotely beautifully honest now i was enjoying i was enjoying the sounds of um Kanpur from from my bed um you were delving a little bit more into the detail and there were lots of um heroes in what was a fantastic test match it was an amazing um, but test you match, picked out one yeah, so um, I managed to watch uh, a bit of it through, admittedly, a fairly um, illicit uh, website stream. But we we find these things where we where we can. I missed the end of the test, which I'm kind of kicking myself about. Oh, those it was kind such of a cl- good ending. Cl- did you listen to the end? Oh God, never have the has the light meter been so wonderful. Yep. You know, every time yep. they took it out, oh, fantastic! And it's just just brilliant. It just goes to show, yeah, how how thrilling a, a draw can be. Um, whenever I did tune in over the course of the of of the five days, it always seemed that Tom Latham was at the at the crease. And it kind of you know, despite Gareth Batty's um, aversion to stats, the stat here is useful, which is that he was at the crease for seventy one overs. He batted for seventy one overs, which was just around a third of, of New Zealand's total overs. Um, in their in their innings, um, his first innings, ninety five, falling painfully short of what have been would have been a, a wonderful century, took him just shy of um, three hundred balls. But what I particularly loved about watching him him batting was that it wasn't just a um, you know a sort of Chris Tavares block everything kind of kind of innings. It was a real masterclass in how you bat in a really practical way to suit the conditions. So it was a difficult pitch. It was against a quality Indian spin attack. And he basically decided very early on that he was going to put away his drive and his his cut shots, that he was he was going to kind of leave everything that was outside off and then just frustrate the bowlers into bowling at his, at his pads and then sweeping that. So he was still... He had a strategy that allowed him to stay in, but it was also a strategy that allowed him to, to score runs um, at the same time. And it was one of these game plans that you watched him batting and you thought it's just so obvious what he's doing but it was because it was so obvious not despite the fact that it was so obvious that it actually just worked 100% and the Indian spinners kind of couldn't do much Mm. against it I think what was very educational about it is you often feel a player needs to reinvent their game so do something new in Mm. the subcontinent and actually I think you're right that Latham's great skill was to do less you know you pick what you can do and you really really focus on it with great discipline from um your perspective as our as our australia correspondent does the trans trans tasman rivalry mean that uh, your average australian cricket fan would be rooting for india in this or is it more complicated than that that is a really good question. I think that actually the um, nature of Australian fandom is that Australian fans don't really care 
about um, I was about to say give a shit, but that our family friendly rating would go down the <laughs> down down the pan. Um, but the um, don't really care about any team that's not Australia on the whole. So actually, this series has been barely covered in Australia. I haven't actually really seen it in the um, in the Australian media at all. Um, on the whole, though, um, yeah, Australians kind of uh, it's not that sort of English thing of support anyone who's not Australia. I think generally the Australians support Australia and, and, and no one else. <laughs> From the archives, and in this episode, we're going to find out who the first cricketer was to score a century and take 10 wickets in a single test match. So, who would you have said this was? Would you have known if I'd asked you this trivia question? Oh, no, I, I definitely wouldn't have known. I mean, you, you, you've got to go for an all-rounder, haven't you? So, who would I have guessed? Uh, uh, may, uh, well, I probably would have assumed it was some cricketer from back, back in the day that I didn't know, but maybe I would have gone for someone like a, a Sobers, perhaps? Interesting. So similar, sim- similar era is is the answer that is often given. So Ian Botham was the first male Test cricketer to to achieve this feat, but the actual first Test cricketer overall to do it was an Australian by the name of of Bessie Wilson, and her hundredth birthday would have been on the twenty first of November um, this year. So it seems like a uh, the right moment to to shine a light on what is quite a remarkable story and quite a remarkable um, cricketer. So she was born in Australia in. 1921 and she was the daughter of a shoemaker um she uh, was born and brought up in in melbourne playing street cricket um and didn't have any particular formal training i think just played in the sort of in the, in the back alley behind her um behind her home um there's a wonderful story about uh, her when she was um age 10 and she was out walking with her father after school or something and they passed by a training session for the collingwood ladies cricket club and uh, someone, you know, hit a hit a stray ball in in her direction as they were walking around the boundary, and Wilson picked it up and, much to everyone's astonishment, fired in a kind of you know forty yard throw straight over the bales to the um, to the keeper. And you know, you can imagine the moment hush fell around the ground and everyone turned around and there she was, this little ten year old with the with the amazing arm. Um, so they all assumed that this was kind of a bit of a a bit of a fluke or that they couldn't believe their eyes. And so someone hit out another ball in her in her direction and she did exactly exactly the 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 same thing i don't know how true this story is but but it's certainly a a wonderful story of the the kind of i I think um, we also we have a bit of missing dialogue here which is i'd love to know what her dad said yeah well indeed indeed well as you'll as 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 you'll see in a second it turns out that her father was um it seems quite quite supportive of her um of her cricketing and of of her career because after this incident the team the collingwood ladies cricket club invited her to play um for them that that very weekend and the only real thing that was standing in the way of this of this plucky 10 year old was um her lack of lack of kit so they had to kind of improvise one of her um, teammates, somebody already on the team, uh, got one of their spare kind of cricketing skirts out and, and sort of put the hem up a few inches so that she didn't sort of trip over it. Um, and her father, who was, as you'll uh, remember, was a cobbler, was a shoemaker, and he actually went to his workshop and made her a, a special pair of cricket shoes that she could go out and, and, and play. So obviously her father was into this um, into this idea idea as well. 
Um, it seemed from this from this start that she was always, you know, destined to be a um, quite a star. So she was selected for her stateside for Victoria at the age of um, sixteen. Um, that though was on on the very cusp of World War Two, and so it wasn't until she was twenty six that she made her international debut. But as soon as she did, she made an impression straight away. She scored ninety and took nine wickets against um, against New Zealand. I think what's remarkable about this is that there is no good time, obviously, to have a, a major interruption in your career. No but, good time to have a world thought, war. Well, quite. Uh, but you would think there is probably no worse time than actually when you're 16, really, yeah. because that is a point where in your development as a sportsman, as an athlete, you you, you desperately need to make that transition from sort of a, a teenage prodigy to a to a something in the game. So to have, to have gone through that and had that much of your development presumably lost... And then find yourself still excelling 10 years later is quite something. Well, and that's the thing. You think of 16 and that's, you know, Sachin Tendulkar, I think, made his test debut at the age of 16. That's when kind of prodigies start playing at the at the highest level. By the time you get to 26, you're actually mid-career in many, you know, in many cases. You've actually made that that leap kind of almost almost straight away um the other thing that was was interesting about about Wilson was that as a you know as a an amazing woman cricketer she became a kind of flag bearer for women in society you know more more broadly there's a really interesting um quotation from from 1948 from the the great Australian um spinner Bill O'Reilly who wrote that from this time onwards I shall steadfastly refrain from saying that so and so batted or bowled like an old woman and he said this in reaction to Wilson's performances. And, you know, we still have that idea of, oh, you throw like a girl. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to hear someone come out and go, oh, here is someone who just so obviously proves that it is ridiculous to use that as some kind of, you know, as some kind of insult um, along the way. So for Wilson, she did become this this kind of real um, figurehead, I suppose, of what women could do in sport. It's a really solid concrete example of having impact on how people view your sport isn't mm. it? if you convince someone like Bill O'Reilly who his thoughts on the game would have had huge impact on how many exactly. perceived it if you can convince them to change their opinion you really are changing the way the game is viewed despite all of this cricket was still amateur at the time um, you know there was not a lot of money in the women's women's game it wasn't though as though suddenly Betty Wilson was you know employed full-time as a, as a cricketer so instead she has to, had to work as an office assistant to fund her her career and actually the majority of her training took place in in the backyard of her of her parents home apparently she would um, put a um, a ball into a pair of stockings and hang it to the washing line and she would hit that to, to perfect her batting and she would um, you know walk down the street run down the street throwing stones at lampposts uh, to, to improve her to imp- improve her fielding um, as well which I think again is just a lovely take you know we always think of um, you know Don Bradman with his um, with his golf ball and his and his stump and this is a kind of wonderful wonderful different different take on on, on that um, she had this this motto that um there's no use standing there all day waiting for the ball you want to hit which i think is actually a really uh great reflection of that idea as 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 a batsman you know we think of so many people having particularly strong areas so and so is particularly strong to leg or to off or you know behind square whereas her view was you kind of had to be strong around the wicket and she spent this is her career the sort of anti, trying to perfect that this is the anti-tom latham philosophy here 
Exactly, exactly. She would have been driving and cutting everything on the offside in that in that Campur, in that Campur Campur test. Um, so I mentioned earlier that test record, um, the the ten wickets and the and the hundred in the in the um, same test, the first person to achieve that. And it was a remarkable game. Actually, it came in February nineteen fifty eight. It was an Ashes game. Um, in Australia, Australia were bowled out for 38 on a wet on a wet pitch. Wilson made 12 top scoring. It looked like it was all over before it had begun. However, then in the English first innings, um, Wilson's off spin took seven for seven, as the as the English were dismissed for 35. She then, by this time, you've realised two innings have gone. What 73 runs scored. It's not a good pitch. However. Wilson goes in in the second innings um, and uh, scores scores a century in a total of two hundred and two for for nine. Um, in the uh, they've so they've set a set a target of hundred two hundred odd for the um, for the English and she takes four English wickets, but the game ends in a in a in a in a rainy draw. But still, the ability to score a hundred on a pitch like that clearly goes a long way to showing her her skill as a um, as a batsman. Um, last... It's also really interesting, I think, the fact that you've got uh, her bowling off spin and presumably playing a very, very key role in the bowling attack as well. So that the fact it, it does sound like the team were, were leaning on her heavily to deliver on both fronts. Exactly. I think completely reliant would be a, <laughs> would be a, a fair way of putting it. What I also love is the fact that a whole, well, several generations of um, Australian cricketers kind of remember her very fondly from the fact that she used to apparently set up shop uh, at the MCG right up to when she died at the age of 88 12 years ago she used to sit at the MCG basically sort of criticizing the criticizing the players throughout in quite a wonderful um, quite a wonderful way The review, and for this episode of Reverse Swept Radio, we have been reading The Cricket Match by Hugh de Selencourt. It's a novel written in 1924. De Selencourt was a theatre and book critic and author. He wrote several novels, and it's really for The Cricket Match that he's um, best remembered. It tells the story of the day of the village cricket match between Tillingford and Raveley, primarily from the perspective of the Tillingford players. Um, Andy, so this book is approaching its centenary in 97 years old now. How has it aged in that time? How well has it aged? I would say remarkably well. So it is undoubtedly a bit tweer and a bit more rose-tinted than I think one could get away in a in a modern novel today. But even then, I think there are hints, and we'll get to this, that there is a, there are sort of undercurrents below the kind of uh, perfect Tillingford exterior. We've got mm-hmm. references to the war. We've got grumbles about growing traffic through the yes. village. The battle of maintaining a pitch in the... Um, against the demands of football I think one thing that chimed with both of us um, is how much the account of what it is to play for a uh, I was going to say middling maybe I'm being polite to both of us but a a ragtag a ragtag club side um, how many things sort of struck us as being absolutely on the money still Um, I mean there's a few that I think are worth picking out I loved the sledging which was undertaken yes. by the Raverly <laughs> players when the number 11 comes in and they all start remarking, I could just do with a nice cup of tea, which is exactly what my team does. We all talk about, oh, an early tea, guys, an early tea, guys. And, you know, we haven't learned that whenever we do that, it inevitably prolongs the uh, prolongs the pain. W- which were the moments that struck you as uh, 
uh, almost too accurate to be comfortable. There, there, yeah, there were so many relatable moments that could have come straight out of my my club side. I liked this um, description of um, trying to find a batting order where you have a group of a team that kind of aren't batsmen. And, and um, to Salincourt writes, um, the whole team would have liked to have gone in sixth, say, or seventh, but someone must always go in first. Someone must always go in last, and no one felt quite the right man for either place. You know, everyone sort of fancies yeah. themselves up the order, but doesn't want to open. And you know, suddenly you do have a exactly as he says, a, a, a group of. Um, uh, you know, I, of batsmen who who are all middle order batsmen was completely spot on. The only thing I would add is I think I'd add fifth to that list. I always feel the fight is for kind of fifth and sixth. They're the dream, the dream role. Yes. The other thing I think that makes you realise that this book was written nearly a hundred years ago is some of the um, quite dated but also quite delightful um, language. There's a moment where uh, one player who's run out another player while they're while they're batting describes himself as a as an utter juggins. <laughs> And I think I'm going to use the word juggins next time I'm on the um, next time I'm on the on, on the field. What was the kind of language that, that jumped out at you? Well, there, there's a, there, there's the use of underfug for a shirt, which was very yes. good. For for me, the one that really struck, which was a, a phrase rather than a specific word, but <laughs> there is an extended paragraph, and I won't give you all of it, describing a bench, and it talks about the seats bore the strain very well, awaiting without impatience the quiet, steady contact of elderly posteriors, um, which, whatever your views on flowery language, your tolerance has to be considerable to think that that's an acceptable way to describe sitting on a bench. I just love the quiet, steady contact of elderly posteriors. That's something that we can all we can all aspire towards. <laughs> now, you alluded to the fact that... Um, you know, this, so this is a book about a cricket match. One thing that I think is quite interesting in the structure of it is that De Selincourt, the first part of the novel, is spent looking at the cricketers outside their cricket context. So we kind of wake up with all of the cricketers in their different homes. So, you know, there's one guy who's a kind of labourer who wakes up with his young children who have, who have um, you know, gone to the loo all over his trousers. Um, and then there's the local gentry and then there's the kind of elder of the of, of the team with the fussy, with the fussy wife and so the way that sets it up is such that we go from this transition of having a very uh, sort of disparate view group of characters through to everyone kind of coming together coherently on the cricket pitch and part of his narrative point almost is that cricket brings all these people from all these different classes together in this in the context of this game but at the same time kind of the class thing does bubble away under the surface doesn't it of this novel so I think this surprised me. So I was expecting the tweeness. I was expecting the beauty of the Sussex Downs. I think I was less expecting the constant reference to class and this awkwardness that it's something that the players are always having mm. to manage. They talk about changing their behaviour and they talk about there's one example of one of the more upper class players being very polite to one of the more working class players. The working class player finding that incredibly difficult. Yes. And it made you realise, you know, the difficulty of negotiating all these things. I think one thing that's clever about the novel is I wondered early on whether we were going to get a bit of a bust up because yep. there are quite a few comments about in this one phrase where one player thinks it's a disgrace the way things is done now selection committee it's just a clique that's all it is and you wonder whether you're going to get a row and you never do it's left as you say to kind of simmer and, 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 and bubble under the surface there um, are also all of these internal you hear the kind of internal monologues of, of a lot of the players who are getting annoyed by exactly as you said earlier getting annoyed by other players and players who drop catches and we've all kind of had this thing where you um kind of alternate between liking people because of their cricket 
skill or forgiving people their lack of cricket skill because you like them. And that's also another kind of dynamic that comes out here. And you're exactly right about it bubbling out under the surface and you wondering when it's going to erupt because you suddenly realise some of these things that they're, that they're thinking, if they were ever said, would break the veneer of, you know, kind of everyone getting on within the context of a cricket game. And this brings us back a little bit to things that strike true today. I mean, I'm always fascinated by the incredible politics that can surround any sports team, even a, an amateur casual sports team. And I think also a lot of us, I think if we reflected on our friendship groups and our sports teams, you know, we would realise that actually often the sports teams do represent one of the most diverse groups of people we, mm. we hang out with and spend time with. And actually it, it often feels to me one of the great arguments for for taking part in this that that it's it's actually a way where a lot of people um in some ways branch out beyond their most obvious kind of social social grouping yeah there was really that this really kind of wonderful description of of sid smith who i think is the first character we meet in the in the novel and he and he wakes up and as i said earlier you know he's got two young children and um, one of them, you know, doesn't have their nappy on, but for whatever reason, his um, his cricket whites get 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 stained. And uh, there's this description of, of Sid Smith rising slowly. He lifted the forlorn soiled trousers. Dismay extinguished anger on his face. It was only on the cricket field that Sid Smith, a bowler famed for many miles around, was able to feel a man's self self respect. And as you say, there is this kind of, I think, quite quite powerful if at times quite rose-tinted yeah sense of, of people being able to come into their own and to lose the sort of shackles of their everyday life on on the cricket pitch but then balance as you say with the way that that um social context does make itself felt in a cricketing context too i think absolutely the game uh, the book has moments where it brings through darker sides and more complicated sides one thing it is always very clear on is its evangelism for for the sport of cricket um, I would love to see someone do an update. I think it would be an incredibly yes. fun to see someone attempt a, a sort of modern uh, 21st century version of this. Um, I wonder if that if that does uh, if that does exist. But I that think it would come idea. with our hearty recommendation. Uh, we don't do uh, perhaps enough novels on the podcast, and I think this has maybe inspired us to uh, hunt out a few more. So that is The Cricket Match by Hugh de Selincourt. You can get it on a, despite being um, 100 years old, you can get it on a on a Kindle version, did you have an old kind of um, hardback uh, cloth well, uh, covered version? My, from... my, my, my story was very complicated, which is that I ordered a hardback version, uh, which then took a long time to arrive. So I then I then uh, d- defaulted to the to the screen version. Um, but it is also a very civilized length at around two hundred and four pages. So mm. uh, it, it is one that you can. Um, dip into and blast through very rapidly so that was the 147th episode of reverse swept radio leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast and get in touch at reverse swept